The next set of presentations focused on multiple myeloma and were reviewed by Dr. Rafael Fonseca, beginning with a paper evaluating the combination of bortezomib, dexamethasone, and cyclophosphamide. This is a very interesting paper that was presented by Dr. Knopp and colleagues and actually builds on a growing body of data suggesting efficacy of bortezomib-based strategies as induction therapy for myeloma. But very specifically, what they have done is they continue to build on the combination of bortezomib and cyclophosphamide alongside with dexamethasone. This, in fact, was a large study. They presented 200 patients, which I think is right now the largest experience that has been reported with this combination. And the reality is they continue to show that this is a very, very active regimen for the treatment of myeloma patients. This study shows that patients respond. Most of them do. They have a very high rate of overall response rate. But perhaps even more importantly, they have very deep responses, which is the same thing that has been reported and published also by other series. In our institution, we have a recent publication with a combination similar to this one, where you not only see that patients respond, but they do have a high rate of complete responses or very good partial responses or better. What about the issue of cytogenetics and response? You know what? It's an interesting point they raise. So they say that the response is independent of cytogenetic analysis with the exception of minus 17 The caveat with that, and I think that's true for almost all of the other studies that have talked about this, is that in general, the response is not as much of an issue with high-risk cytogenetics. It's the duration of response what matters more. But even then, I think the important part here is that the patients with minus 17 actually do have a lower response rate, which remains still a problematic aspect of the treatment of myeloma. But what they're showing, on the other hand, is that some of the other high-risk genetic features respond very well. So... It is possible that this could be an ideal induction strategy for any patient, irrespective of their genetic category. And I think there's not any other regimen that I know of that would have a better response for the minus 17, which again remains problematic in general. But I think more importantly will be to have the long-term follow-up to look at the duration of response. Where is this regimen heading in terms of clinical trials? Well, you know, this regimen is actually now being tested in a very important phase three clinical trial, which is the evolution trial. That's a trial that has three arms and is randomizing between bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, and then the four agents together. And so we will have an answer to the superiority of four versus one of the three drug combinations. But I think this has immediate implications for the practice. And I have to say, in our own practice, we use this regimen quite a bit of study. And in fact, with our referral partners, we talk frequently about the combination of cyclophosphamide and bortezomib for patients who have either more aggressive disease or presentation, and certainly use it quite a bit in the setting of relapsed and refractory disease. And obviously, cyclophosphamide is widely available, and physicians in the community are comfortable with its use. So in our case, we actually use essentially 500 milligrams once a week orally. We start from a dose of 300 milligrams per meter square once a week. So it could be done either that way or the intravenous way. But I think people in the community need to know this is a very active regimen. And for those patients that have aggressive disease patients with renal failure that you want to revert rapidly, this is a very, very good alternative. How about the paper by Jakubiak looking at lenalidomide, bortezomib, and pegylated liposome with doxorubicin with DEX? So that's actually a very interesting paper. It's obviously built around the concept of escalating with a phase one, phase two. In in this particular study, they actually have made it somewhat simple by providing uh, escalation only of certain agents. What they have done in this particular study, they kept the Velcade dose fixed at 1.3 and escalated the Reb and the Doxyl at the very last dose in dose level 4. 
This study is really now building on a question that will be addressed in some of the abstracts we will discuss further, which is, okay, we have all these active agents. Are we better off sequencing or should we give them all up front? And it's a very, very important debate that's going on right now because people say that it is sometimes impossible to rescue failures of initial treatment. So that is a patient who has progressive disease and ultimately dies as a consequence of myeloma that cannot be salvaged, obviously. And there is a suggestion now that the better the response rate and the better your ability to control the disease right from the get-go, the better the patient will do in the long term. So the important thing is this is done in the context of a clinical trial. I think it's hard to make comparisons at this point, whether the addition of the doxil provides an advantage, although the results are very provocative. Now, this study is interesting. It was reported in a different way. Here, they did not report the intention to treat analysis, but actually the actual response. But then you see there that at least 97% of these patients have a partial response or better. So very, very few patients don't meet that criteria. And the question remains, of course, could you have done equally better with lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone alone, or bortezomib, pegylated liposomal, dexamethasone alone? I think the combination of lenalidomide and bortezomib seems to be key. So the real question is whether the pegylated liposomal doxorubicin adds more to the regimen. There's obviously concerns as you introduce more drugs, you introduce a potential more different types of toxicity. But overall, it was well-tolerated, and this really setting the stage for future phase two and phase three clinical trials where four drug combinations are being tested now in myeloma. And the next paper I was going to ask you about also gets into this issue of pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, this time combined with lenalidomide and dex and no bortezomib. Can you talk about that study? Sure. So this is a study by Bass and colleagues from Moffitt Cancer Center. And again, they want to explore whether pegylated liposomal doxorubicin adds something to the combination of lenalidomide and dexamethasone. It is interesting that they actually do have quite an active regimen, but at the end of the day, they end up concluding that this is something that is very preliminary and has to await larger clinical trials. Now, there might be different pathways for the treatment of myeloma, and as we have seen in other clinical trials, Lenalidomide may not necessarily create synergy when it's combined with things such as cyclophosphamide or pegylated liposomal doxorubicin. So I think the way some of these combinations are being organized is that patients either get treatment with lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone, which is a convenient oral simple regimen, or they go into the four-drug combinations where many of us are starting to think that bortezomib does provide some synergy, be that with pegylated liposomal doxorubicin or cyclophosphamide. So this study kind of falls in what we're seeing with other lenalidomide combination studies, that it's difficult to discern an added benefit from the pegylated liposomal doxorubicin. In fact, he finishes by comparing this to lenlodose dex, and the real response rate is quite similar, and a very good PR or better appears to be a little bit higher in patients who get the liposomal doxorubicin combination. But in fact, one has to look further into long-term overall survival and event-free survival. So I think it's interesting But at this point, and as the author state, it's a bit early to draw any firm conclusions about trying this combination in the clinic. It also seemed a little bit on the toxic side. What was your thought on that? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, the neutropenia and fatigue were two things that were noted as significantly higher in patients who got this liposomal doxorubicin. So in the absence of clear benefit, I think one would really be hard-pressed to propose this combination. So just like they say, it's too early to say that this is better. My gestalt or interpretation of this would be that I think pegylated liposomal doxorubicin may do better when it's combined with bortezomib than when it's combined with lenalidomide. 
And it sort of falls into that thematic dichotomy of maybe bortezomib combinations with doxorubicin or cyclophosphamide versus the simplicity of the oral regimen with Vendex. What did you think about Palumbo's presentation looking at VMPT versus VMP in older patients? I think it was a very, very interesting presentation. I think it was my favorite, actually. I thought it was really cool. I think it's really cool. And, you know, I really have to take my hat off to the Italians because every time we go to one of those meetings, they present hundreds of patients in randomized phase three clinical trials. And I, just like the French, they really should get the credit for leading the way of performing this randomized phase three clinical trials. Now, this is one of those trials that really goes to the heart of the question. Are we better off giving everything up front or should we sequence? And what their goal is really is to see whether BMPT is superior to VMP. So specifically, does the addition of thalidomide add something over VMP, which has been reported, of course, is very active in the VISTA trial. But the second part of this, which is actually equally important, is the issue of safety and peripheral neuropathy, which I think was a seminal observation and hopefully something that could help many, many patients. Because what they show in the bottom line is they show this is significantly lower rate of peripheral neuropathy when bortezomib is administered on a weekly basis. And all of us who treat myeloma patients know this is one of the most difficult complications, a dreaded toxicity of bortezomib, and something that if patients can get away with a much lower rate by the weekly administration, this will be a major clinical advance. Now, he provides some data regarding the time to response and the best response, and then there's some analysis regarding progression-free survival, comparing both regimens. And again, at this point, it's somewhat difficult to know whether the addition does provide significant clinical benefit, although the suggestion is that there's a higher response rate. I'd like to note that this is one of the things that came out of the study in one of the slides where they actually provide progression-free survival and risk stratification. You still see a bit of a separation of the curves between standard risk and high risk, and these are patients that are getting the four drugs. So one of the thoughts and one of the themes that we have been talking about in the community is that this idea that all novel agents overcome high-risk genetic categories really needs to await longer follow-up and larger cohorts of patients. Because if you see what happens here with the 414, 1416, or minus 17, in fact, one of them for all patients is statistically significant. And one would imagine that it just becomes an issue of power. And with better regimens, it's harder to show difference. But nevertheless, one needs to keep that in mind. Now, this is important for the following reason. We are talking more and more about myeloma being a chronic disease. But I think one has to be cautious when we encounter a patient who's truly a high-risk patient because the net benefit of all of the advances in myeloma may not have the same magnitude in patients with high-risk disease. So I was really impressed with the study. They show an improvement in the CR rate of 35% versus 21% when they have the T. The progression-free survival, again, seems to be better. The overall survival still needs a longer follow-up. At this point, it's not statistically significant, but they do show that also improvement in peripheral neuropathy rates. Getting back to this issue of the neurotoxicity, it was really striking. So when you compare the patients who get weekly to twice-weekly, I mean, grade 3 neuropathy, 18% versus 2%, dose reduction, 42 versus 11, discontinuation, 10 versus 3. I mean, that was in the VMPT arm. Pretty similar differences in the VMP arm. That's a pretty striking difference. I think it's very, very striking, as you state. And, you know, this is somewhat reminiscent of what happened with the CREST study when bortezomib was first developed, where they actually used a lower dose, and they had very similar response rates and a lower incidence of peripheral neuropathy. So the differences are truly 
remarkable, down to 2% is just outstanding. And if we could actually verify those results, but when you look at the number of patients, there's a large number of patients that have already been treated with this combination. So they would seem to be somewhat strong, those numbers. The important part of this is that one of the thoughts that's being discussed in the myeloma community is that chronicity of therapy may matter. And in fact, that's why some of the studies like the MPT study, the IFM 9906, resulted in superior overall survival than transplant, and that is because patients can be treated for longer. And for bortezomib, the number one factor, patients have to be stopped on therapies because of the development of peripheral neuropathy. So if you suddenly start saying, well, now with this 2%, we can actually treat patients with bortezomib for longer, so we create a greater area under the curve for treatment, this might even make the results better because, again, come to compare this to lonolutomide, the rate and the quality of responses just continues to improve over time on patients who can sustain therapy for months. So this actually has to be tested in that context. Is now with this lower rate of peripheral neuropathy, can we treat patients for longer? So does that mean that right now, outside of a protocol setting, you're not going to be changing what you're doing? You're still going to give it twice weekly? Well, you know, that's actually different. I have to say, in our institution, we do use bortezomib weekly as well, too. And for patients who have a pre-existing peripheral neuropathy or we think are at high risk, we do that. We use a similar regimen, as we discussed at the beginning, the NOP study, the CYBOR-D regimen, we call it. And for our off-study treatment of patients, we actually use weekly bortezomib. And it is particularly because of this lower rate of peripheral neuropathy that we're doing that. What about the paper by Shaw et al. looking at autologous stem cell transplant after induction therapy with bortezomib lenalidomide or bortezomib thalidomide? This is a very, very interesting paper. And one could start by saying what states the obvious, but it's important that actually numbers are provided. The reason for that is that people have come to question the value of autologous stem cell transplant as a modality of treatment for myeloma. And what they show here is that patients who receive an induction therapy with one of their two institutional protocols, either bortezomib lenalidomide dexamethasone or bortezomib thalidomide dexamethasone, have an improvement in the quality of the responses once they have their autologous transplant. And although this is still debated, emerging data suggests that, one, obtaining a better response rate pre-transplant, and two, obtaining a better response post-transplant would ultimately translate into clinical benefit for patients in the way of prolonged survival. What they show in the study is that even though you get very high rates of response and oftentimes deep responses with these combinations, that still can be improved upon with a consolidation strategy of autologous stem cell transplant. So it does provide at least a context for asking the question, well, is transplant adding anything to the treatment of the myeloma? And according to the results, the answer should be yes, because patients are having a deeper rate of response. Now, of course, one has to look at the long term of these patients, particularly as it relates to their event-free or progression-free survival. But again, most of the studies that are addressing this, and the French and the Italian have presented two of these papers, both at the ASH meeting and at the myeloma workshop, it does appear that getting better responses in general translates into better outcomes for patients. So I myself like to say, not being primarily a transplanter, that transplant still remains a potentially very useful tool for the treatment of myeloma. And for selected patients, many of us still believe it adds to the overall control of the disease. What about the issue that really wasn't addressed in this study, but a lot of people are talking about, which is delaying transplant? Well, that's a very, very interesting point. And it goes back to the question that was raised also with the four drug combinations. You know, traditionally, we know that delaying stem cell transplant results in similar outcomes, and that was shown by the randomized phase three studies from the French. And some centers are doing that. They store the cells and they elect to do transplants at a later date. 
But the concern that has been raised recently is that there are patients that actually lose enough health or die as a consequence of the progressive disease that actually don't get all the way to a transplant at the time of a relapse. Now, having said that, the results with some of the alternatives for upfront transplant are so good that even with that caveat, people think it's a reasonable strategy. At our institution, in fact, we offer delayed transplant for patients who don't want to do that upfront. And for instance, for patients who want to be treated with primary therapy with lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone, we think that's a very appropriate strategy just to store your stem cells and do that later on. Whether we will ever have a randomized phase three clinical comparison between upfront and delayed in the area of novel agents, I don't think that's going to happen. But at least our interpretation of the data would suggest that that can be done. Another issue relative to some of the newer novel agents is mobilization of stem cells. And there was a poster presented looking at this issue as it relates to lenalidomide. Can you talk about that? Yes. So a concern has been raised regarding the use of lenalidomide and the potential impact that this has on the collection of stem cells. And there is some conflicting data out there, but at this point, most people think that the yield and your ability to collect enough stem cells for one or two transplants, it's compromised by the use of lenalidomide up front. So people have tried to look at strategies where you can overcome this limitation. And this paper actually shows what more and more people are thinking, that mobilization with GCSF alone is insufficient for patients who get lenalidomide-based induction. But that, in fact, when patients are mobilized with chemo mobilization with, in this case, cyclophosphamide and etoposide, essentially all patients can be collected and the collection is done in a short number of days and with a very adequate number of cells. In this particular case, 23.2 times 10 to the 6 per kilogram cells, which is actually a very, very good collection. Now, this study shows two things. One is that the issue with stem cell collection should really not be a limitation in your ability to use lenalidomide, but if stem cells are to be collected, this cannot be done with growth factor alone. Number two is that patients who actually get lenalidomide, one would wonder, why is it that stem cell collection is not as good as it has been with other regimens? And it probably has to do with transcription factors and somewhat with degranulation and the ability of some of the proteins and proteases that exist in the neutrophils to actually release those stem cells from the bone marrow. But in fact, if you actually provide the chemotherapy, they are released and you can have a good stem cell collection. Now, there is one comment that I think is pertinent for the study, and that is that if you have a patient who wants to get lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone as primary therapy, you're not going to be interested in providing them with chemotherapy with cyclophosphamide and etoposide and potentially create some of the neutropenia or alopecia that goes with that. So the question is what to do for those patients. And fortunately, with the availability of plerixophore, this may actually overcome this limitation for patients who receive induction with lenalidomide. And in fact, ongoing studies are trying to address that question. What about the paper presented by Dr. Anderson looking at lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone, the so-called RVD regimen? This is a subsequent presentation of data that we have seen at previous meetings regarding the combination of lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. The take-home message for people in the community is that this is something that can be done. And in fact, it's an important option for patients who have failed prior therapies. It is important to remember that patients who have failed on a little mite, have failed bortezomib, will occasionally respond to the combination of both of these agents. And actually, for the most part, they can be provided at the same doses as patients do receive when they're provided as single agents. One important comment here that people should know is that the dexamethasone has been used at lower doses in the most recent iteration of this combination. So people are leaning towards the use of 20 milligrams more instead of 40 milligrams. 
And lenalidomide can be used anywhere between 15 and 25 milligrams. I think this study, the data of the study is known. It ultimately will be published. But as that happens, I think people in the community should know that this is a feasible combination. And for patients who have failed prior therapies, this is a reasonable alternative. I've also heard it said, I wonder whether you agree, I don't know how much experience you have with this regimen, that in some ways it's not more toxic. In other words, you would think it'd be more toxic. But I've heard Paul Richardson say in some way, the lenalidomide and bortezomib, in some way, when they're used together, the toxicity decreases? Mm-hmm. You know, I think the jury's still out there on that one. We do have to get more experience at multiple sites. I know even the comment has been made regarding a lower rate of peripheral neuropathy. However, if you look at the data from this clinical trial that I mentioned before, the evolution clinical trial, it does seem like the combination of the three drugs does have some significant toxicity, so it may be an issue of patient selection, and certainly this is something that people will be following closely. But I think what I could say right now is that it's not evident to me that it's significantly more toxic. I don't know if it's less toxic, but it doesn't appear to be much more toxic than both agents used alone. What about the paper looking at bortezomib and dexamethasone following risk-adapted malvolin and stem cell transplant in patients with light-chain amyloidosis? This is a very, very interesting paper. This was discussed at the poster discussion and the data presented by the group from Drs. Lando and Comenso. The background here is that for patients with light-chain amyloidosis, the vast majority of them have indolent plasma cell neoplasms, either in the form of an MGUS and less commonly smoldering or active myeloma. But the goal of the treatment of amyloidosis patients is the eradication of the amyloidogenic protein, and that is the light chain. So while we debate in myeloma whether complete response may be important or critical, we know that's the case in amyloidosis. In amyloidosis, you need to get rid of that monoclonal protein. And what they did here is they provided something that, as the first time I see this term being used, adjuvant bortezomib, and that is post-stem cell transplant. And what they show is that after stem cell transplant, they had of 21 patients, five of them achieved a complete response and 16 had less than a complete response. And this patients actually, their overall response rate went up higher to 92%, and then 67% of patients achieved a complete response. So what they're able to do is they upgrade the quality of the responses of patients with amyloidosis treated with transplant. And the thought here is that that would improve the balance in favor of amyloid resorption versus further amyloid deposition. Now, this is not the first study that has looked at bortezomib in the setting of amyloidosis. Data with bortezomib as primary therapy was presented by the Greek group of Dr. Dimopoulos at the myeloma workshop with excellent responses. And our group has been working with the use of the same combination, bortezomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone, as primary therapy for amyloidosis. And I think that the possibilities of the treatment of amyloidosis in the future are much brighter because of this particular set of combinations. Mind you, the standard of care has been on a single autologous transplant with patients somewhere between 40 and 50% of patients achieving a complete response. For patients who are not transplant eligible, the standard has been melphalan and dexamethasone with a much lower rate of complete responses. And now with the addition of bortezomib, complete responses can be obtained in 60, potentially up to 70% of patients, certainly setting a stage for an improvement in the overall survival and response of this patient. So I think this is very, very exciting data. And my hope is that as bortezomib is introduced into the overall treatment strategy of amyloidosis, with or without transplant, this probably will result in improvement in the survival of patients. Any comments in terms of what they saw in patients with cardiac disease? 
You know, it's very interesting because the cardiac involvement that they see remains a predictive factor for overall survival. And as their cardiac markers go up, of course, the risk of death goes up as well, too. This is one of the things that people are watching closely as bortezomib is being introduced into the treatment of amyloidosis because the toxicities that one might see are going to be quite different from what you would see in myeloma, particularly because of the organ damage associated with amyloidosis. I think at this point, what they're able to show here again is that the cardiac markers remain predictors of ultimate survival, but one would have to be mindful, of course, of the cardiac toxicity. On the other hand, cardiac function can actually improve substantially in a subset of patients, and they may actually be the ones who are responding with a hematologic response here. The last paper I wanted to ask you about was a study looking at the combination of rituximab and bortezomib in patients with Waldenstrom's. This is a study presented by Dr. Irene Gobriel from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where she actually presents on the combination of bortezomib and rituximab. And this is a very interesting study because emerging data shows now that the Waldenstrom's will respond to bortezomib. There is data presented now by several groups and published that shows that Waldenstrom cells like myeloma cells, do have increased signaling through the NF-kappa-B pathway, therefore setting the stage for this being a bortezomib-sensitive disease. And previous data from the group from the Dana-Farber as well does show that the addition of bortezomib may actually be helpful in controlling the flare reaction that is oftentimes seen with administration of rituximab. So what they do is they present a phase two study of 37 patients and this patients had clinical features that were quite normal in distribution as far as what is seen in patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. They have a short follow-up, and in fact, some of those responses may actually get better as time goes by because it's well known that the responses oftentimes are delayed in patients with Waldenstrom's. And so they talk about 35 patients in 6% of them. So two patients, they had a complete remission. In 48% of patients, another 17, a partial remission. And in another 10 patients, they have a minimal response. Now, this is remarkable because it's been accepted now in Waldenstrom's, like it is being accepted in myeloma, that minimal responses do contribute to clinical benefit. And patients, even if they have only a 25 or 30% reduction in their monoclonal protein, can have a significant improvement in symptoms. In this particular study, the flare only occurred in about 1 in 5 patients, 20%. What do you normally see in terms of flare? What percent of patients? About 50% of patients we have a rituximab flare. And that becomes problematic for two things. First of all, for gauging actual response, but also in a patient who has a high IgM, this actually could prompt a patient to go into hyperviscosity. So the blunting of that flare reaction actually is an important clinical endpoint. And they do respond grade one and two neuropathy in 26% of patients and grade three only in two patients, but that's always something that will remain there. And in this particular study, they use a different dose for bortezomib, 1.6 on days 1, 8, 15, and this is on a acute 28-day cycle. But, I mean, they claim that there was no significant peripheral neuropathy, and it sort of harkens back to what we were talking about before in terms of weekly bortezomib, which is what they gave. You know, I think this is better tolerated, although one important point, and this is true for myeloma as well, too, that grade 1 and 2 peripheral neuropathy have to be considered. It's not only grade 3 and 4 as it is for most other toxicities, because patients with significant grade 1 or 2 neuropathy could have symptoms that will impair their quality of life. But I think, again, this shows a decreased rate of peripheral neuropathy. And what one might have as a take-home message from this is that both agents are available. And if you have a patient with Waldenstrom's who has a need for a further therapy at the time of relapse disease, this might be an attractive alternative.